Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. have a seat. Well, this section is a continuation that you just heard Nathan read there as a continuation of kind of the monologue that Jesus started in this seeming trial that's happened before him where, where the Jews, the religious leaders of this day, they had come to Jesus and attacking him for doing something on the Sabbath in this regard. And so Jesus then makes a bunch of claims about who he is in relation to God. They're attacking him for saying he makes himself equal to God. He's saying, no, I am, I am God the Son. He is God the Father, but I still am submitted to God. I still am in subordination to him in this way. And he lays out a number of different ways in which he is operating and, and receiving honor and glory, the things that were only meant to be for God. And then he moves in this section to what would make sense if you're going to make this claim, to the witnesses. To the people that can then testify of who he is. A witness is someone who's got eyewitness. They've seen it. They know what it means. They are firsthand evidence that they were there. And these are the witnesses he's doing. And this text says that Jesus says, hey, don't take my word alone. I'm going to come out with witnesses. The witnesses are not for Jesus' sake. They're for the listener's sake. Jesus isn't needing the witnesses to add validity to his statement. He's, the witnesses are in place so that those that are hearing it would understand that this is true testimony. Deuteronomy 19.15 says that you must have two or more witnesses to make a corroboration, to make a story true. So they were following it. Jesus also asserted that and said that later on through the Gospels. The Apostle Paul said that as well. This was a common practice out of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They, they would need two or more witnesses to share that this is true firsthand experience. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's following in and he kind of gives us, he gives us four witnesses. The first would be John the Baptist. We see that in verse 33. Then the works of Jesus in verse 36. And then the father himself in verse 37. And then the scriptures, verse 39. But he ties in Moses out of verse 45. But all of it's based on the kind of the understanding, the premise that, that everyone, that verse 32 assumes that everything that Jesus has done is the Father, the Father has been active in. And so he, he comes out laying out these witnesses in this monologue section. What's really interesting is as he kind of lays out his witness, near the end of it, he kind of flips the table around. He's on trial. He's, he's trying to state his case and saying, this is why what I said is true. He kind of turns the tables at the end and starts coming at the accusation, or coming at the accusers themselves with his own accusation. So in verse 33, the very first kind of person that they use, that Jesus says as a witness, is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist has already been prevalent in this gospel. We've seen it over and over again. But what we don't maybe understand or know about John the Baptist is he was kind of the first prophet in 400 years. So there was a lot of excitement. We see in some of the old historians, writings, Josephus and other ones, that there was a lot of like messianic excitement around John the Baptist. The people were kind of excited about what they were doing. They were going out to see what he's doing. He was different than anything else. They hadn't, they hadn't heard from a prophet in 400 years. This is something that's exciting. And he's saying, he pointed to me. John the Baptist, what did you go out looking for? You went out to him, and he pointed to me. He says things like, I must decrease, and he must increase. 
He says, I'm not worthy to wear his sandals when Jesus is walking in. So, so John the Baptist was pointing, which is where you get the light reference here when he says he's a lamp. He's not the light. He's not the source of the light like we saw in the first chapter, but he's a lamp pointing to Jesus. And in doing so, he points to Jesus, and they, they don't see it. They don't like it. They like the idea of this prophet being there, but they weren't prepared for who this prophet was going to point them towards. They weren't prepared to accept that. And so his first witness is John the Baptist, someone that, that everyone was excited about. At this point, we're assuming he's still alive at this moment before he's beheaded, but they point to him and they say, okay, this is, this is my witness in this place. And the Jews love the idea of a prophet, the religious leaders, sorry, the religious leaders love the idea of a prophet, love the idea of the Messiah, but didn't love the fact that John the Baptist, as a prophet, was pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And so they didn't accept that witness. So then Jesus goes on to his kind of his second witness, and his second witness is in, in verse 36, and this is, this is the works or the signs. Again, we've talked about this. In, in, the, in the Gospels, the works were never the means. They were never what we were supposed to look at. They were always pointing to something else. The works were, were the, the amazing things that God had done through Jesus that, that ultimately were not ends in themselves, but they were to prove that Jesus was the sent one from the Father. Jesus started doing works that, that were prophesied about him, that these religious leaders would have known because they've searched the scriptures, they studied them, they, they understood it, and Jesus was doing things that the scriptures had said he would do. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 is one, says, Then the eyes of the blind, speaking of the Messiah, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. These works bear witness to the heart of God. See, just like the religious leaders weren't ready to be pointed to Jesus from John the Baptist, the religious leaders weren't ready to see these works as God's because they wanted the Messiah to display his power in politics and in, in military. And Jesus displays his power in acts of compassion and mercy. But he's fulfilling the scriptures that are in front of them. And so all of these, all of these things point to this, and yet they still can't see it. These works that Jesus is talking about include all of Jesus' ministry including the signs which point to the climactic work of the redemption of Jesus on the cross that's coming. And these were his second witness. But again, because they had expected the works to look a specific way, they had expected themselves to be freed from rule, in, in Roman rule at this time. They had, they had seen the Messiah doing something that it wasn't enough to see him just be compassionate and merciful to a random person at the pool of Bethesda. This was not enough for them. So then Jesus moves to the third witness. And this one's a little bit trickier because it's in reference to the very claim that they're making themselves, saying, saying that he's making himself equal with God, although Jesus showed that he is submitted to God in verse 18. But he, he says, the Father, the Father, the one who sent me, the Father, he testifies of me. Now, we don't know which scripture this is in reference to or which case is in reference to. This could be the baptism where God speaks from above. This could be the transfiguration. This could be the triumphal entry. This could be a number of things that are being talked about. Jesus' works in general, just the signs, or how he works in the, in the minds and the hearts of people. Most likely what he's talking about here when he says, the Father, I do the Father's work, is most likely Jesus was referring to the inner work of God in which he impresses on people's consciences that Jesus is the truth. He's saying the Father witnesses to me too. 
And they weren't okay with this either because for them, then this meant that he is in some way has a better relationship or an understanding of a relationship that they can't seem to have in their own minds because how could, how could they be this way? How, could he, how is he the only one that can do this? And so they didn't like this as a witness either. And so Jesus is working through. They didn't like John the Baptist, although they were excited about him for a moment. They aren't going to really recognize the works because although they're amazing, it must be a prophet or something like that, but then Jesus makes all these claims that he, he can't just be a prophet in his claims. It doesn't make sense. And then they go on, and then he goes on to says the Father himself. Then Jesus moves on to the one that I think would have hit them the hardest, would have really affected them in, a, in an adverse way because this is what ultimately these religious leaders held their hat on of their understanding of God, their acceptance before God, everything in place. And Jesus says, the scriptures themselves testify witness to me. Now again, we don't know which specific scripture he's talking about. He doesn't quote one specific one. But we see on the road to Emmaus after Jesus has rise from the dead, he's walking and he shows up these two disciples that are walking on the road that are dejected saying, we had hoped that this Jesus was this person. And Jesus says, well, who, who was this? And they're like, are you kidding me? How do you not know this? Because he's hidden, he's concealed their identity from it. And then what does he do? And then in, in, in beginning, Luke 24 is where this is, and beginning with Moses, and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. A little bit later in Luke, they finally get to the house and Jesus breaks the bread and it, all of a sudden their eyes are open and he disappears. And the statement was, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? All of the scriptures point to Jesus. The scriptures were the foundation of these religious leaders' traditions. They spent their time diligently studying the scriptures. They had massive chunks, of, if not all of the first five books, most to memory. They knew the scriptures really, really well intellectually, especially Moses' writings. But what they sought by their study in the scriptures, Jesus said, could only be found in him, the one who gives eternal life. The scholars, they, they failed to see that Jesus is the promised one. They knew of the promised one. They read it. They, they, they failed to see that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system or the true righteous servant of Yahweh or the coming prophet or the son of man or the Davidic king or the, the promised son of God and the great high priest. In spite of all the clarity of the revelation, they refused to come to him for life. They wanted the scriptures and the scriptures alone to be it, to be their life. One scholar says it this way. He says, perhaps the most astonishing statement about scripture is speaking of Jesus in the gospel. So if we're going to look for scriptures that talk about Jesus, is in the gospel of John, in John 12, 37 through 41, where John quotes Isaiah 6, which has in it the famous vision of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6, 3. Then John says in his quoting of this, in, in 1241, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah is witnessing the glory to the glory of Jesus because when they saw the glory of God revealed from heaven, he was seeing the glory of Jesus. Nothing more sweeping could be said about the way the Old Testament witnesses to Jesus. In essence, John is saying, where God is manifest in the Old Testament, Jesus is manifest. If you see God at work, you see Jesus at work. If you meet God and you know God and admire God and trust God and are shaped by God as he truly reveals himself and his ways in the whole of the Old Testament, then when Jesus comes, you will know him. You will have already known him. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. Scriptures point to him. Jesus' identity is tied to God's, and the scriptures speak to him. See, and the thing is, is, is when Jesus brings up Moses in verse 45, when he talks about Moses being their accuser, this was hitting a really sore spot. This would have been very offensive to them because they've, they prided themselves on knowing Moses, on knowing the law, on, on understanding it, on living it out righteously by their own works. They prided themselves on this because in their understanding as they searched the scriptures, they were trying to understand life and they didn't realize that the scriptures were pointing to Jesus for life. In fact, one scholar says it this way, says, identity with Moses was important. It was a religious badge of security. But if Moses is possessed and, not, beyond, and not, not obeyed, if Judaism is exploited as a mark of identity instead of a path to God, the very tenets of the Bible, the very words of Moses will come back to haunt and to judge. To possess the Bible and to know the scriptures, but to not know God is to be in the most precarious place of all. See, these religious leaders rejected Jesus because they rejected God's words through Moses. Moses was speaking, speaking of Jesus, pointing to them, or to him. Moses, whom they claimed to follow, would condemn them because they had broken the covenant he instituted and missed the person he wrote about. On whom our hopes are set. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you read this, you search the scriptures, on whom your hopes are set implies that they thought salvation would come by their good deeds in keeping the law. Their hope was in following the law correctly so that they could be with God. And God is saying, no, 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 no. God through Jesus is saying, the, the law points to me. Your life comes through me. This is where life is. This is a huge warning for us today. There's a way for us to know the scriptures and memory and knowledge, but completely miss the point of them. And that is to reveal Jesus. That means that you and I are just as capable of doing the very thing. And it's not because they weren't spending time studying. <laughs> Don't miss that. They spent a lot of time studying and reading and memorizing and holding it to their hearts, and they still missed what was being said. So it's not a matter of you having the right Bible study. It's at recognizing that the Scriptures are pointing to Jesus. See, their failure to grasp God's truth was nowhere more clearly manifest than their approach to Scripture. The way they approached Scripture, the way that we should not approach Scripture, is they approached Scripture in hopes that they would find eternal life in Scripture, not in Jesus through the Scripture. They had put their life in the Scripture and not in Jesus himself. Verse 40 says that they refuse to come to Jesus. They ref the Pharisees had devoted their entire life to memorizing and obeying the law of Moses, but they missed the bright sign flashing Messiah in Jesus Christ. They missed it. There's something incredibly saddening and worth paying attention to in this thought. A whole lot of people's disagreements with God and Jesus aren't intellectual. They are actually at the heart level. And I think that's what people miss here. Is the same thing is true for all of us. It is a heart condition, not just merely an intellectual decision. Because, because even Nicodemus walked away from Jesus. He was the teacher of teachers. So it's not an intellectual issue. It's an issue of the heart. And we have to see this. This is, this is what Jesus, quoting Isaiah, says in Matthew 15. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. Why did they refuse to come to Jesus? See, this is, this is the part that I think is so important for us to see. 
they, Jesus goes on. He, he takes this moment at this monologue. He's, he's, he's laid out his witnesses. They weren't going to hear him through John the Baptist. They didn't hear him through the, the works, and they're not going to hear him through the Father. And ultimately, now Jesus says the scriptures, and all he sees in them is probably just getting fumed and angry. They're probably screaming at him, saying, how dare you say that we don't know Moses, and we don't know the law, and we don't know the scriptures, and that we missed it, because they're like, they're like here, I can just, just go ahead and close it. Test me. Tell me what verse, and I'll just, I'll just speak it out. They had it memorized. They, they knew it. And then we're going to hear all those things. And Jesus does what is actually really common in the court systems in this day. And the Sanhedrin, the way they would do it, is anyone that's being accused, because of the fear of bearing a false witness, which is a commandment of God, they would always want more than one witness. This is the reason why Jesus is laying out his witnesses. He's following that, what, what Deuteronomy teaches. But if someone had adjudicated themselves, had, had shown that what they had said was true, they would take the table and and flip it around and say, then you must be wrong. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He takes what they've done. He turns around and says, okay, you're done checking on me. You're done testing me. I've shown you how I'm true. I've, I've played it out. I've, I've laid everything in place. This is what's true. This is why I am God the Son, and this is how I am submitted to God, and everything I do is God's will, and all those things are in place. And here are the witnesses that prove this point. Now, let's talk about your heart. And he turns the table over and says, okay, there's an issue with you guys that needs to be dealt with. And he turns it over and he says, ultimately, you guys have a big issue. You refuse to come to me. And he starts accusing him. He says that they don't have, in verse 42, he says that they don't have the love of God. They don't have the love of God. And they knew this. This is, this is I mean, the lo love for God is demonstrated in keeping his commandments. They knew this. To, to love God was to keep his commandments. So, so now it's like, okay, wait a second. We don't have the love of God, especially when one of the chief commandments is to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. That, remember we talked about that last week? That's a work of God is to believe in the son. There are three things that evidence their lack of love for God. And if we aren't careful, I believe we are just as susceptible to these things today. See, there are three things. They see, he lays them out in the scripture. The first one is they rejected God the Son, as in Jesus the Messiah. They rejected him. And, and I know many of you today, I'm not rejecting Jesus. I'm okay with it. No, no. What we, we, we rarely will say, I reject Jesus. What we do is we actually try and change the person of Jesus to fit into a more palatable version for ourselves, which is an act of rejection. We make him soft. We make him a little easier to, to, to st stomach. And I know what Jesus said here, but it sounds a little harsh. Or, or I know what Jesus said. I, I don't like this. And we kind of try and make Jesus fit into it. We kind of lobby say, well, Jesus would be on this side, especially in politics and everything else. We try and pull Jesus into everything. And we try to change Jesus, which in essence is rejecting Jesus. Because Jesus is eternal. He was here in the beginning. Nothing's changed. By him, all things were created. We may not say that we reject him like these Pharisees, the religious leaders here are, but we reject him in little ways in our lives by trying to make him different than he really is, by trying to say that he'd be okay with something that he really isn't okay with. We reject Jesus in all sorts of ways. You know, we, another way that we will reject Jesus is we reject him in the idea that Hebrews tells us that his sacrifice is perfect, but then we as his children walk around believing that he can't forgive us for something we've done. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says that, well, should Jesus have to be crucified again as if it wasn't complete? That's a form of rejection of Jesus. The instant we start taking our identity off of being just a child of God and making it something else, we're rejecting who Jesus is in us. We're just as susceptible 
to this. Make him something more palatable to our own liking. The second reason why they don't show the love of God in their lives that we see in this text right here is they accepted false teachers or prophets. Now, some historians, some Jewish historians, specifically Josephus, said that there were some 60 claims to Messiah before 70 AD. Like 60 different individuals that showed up that people thought were the Messiahs. And so it happened over and over again. Ultimately, that's where the temple got destroyed and, and a bunch of other things that happened. But these were these people that they were just so quick to believe. And this is why Jesus says, you won't believe me, but you'll believe in them. Why? Because what was happening is these messiahs, these false prophets, these false teachers, these false messiahs that they were looking at, right? They, they were teaching something that the people liked. They were likable. Man, they were dynamic and they could speak well and they could, people wanted to follow them. And they were like, this is incredible. This, is, this wisdom is brilliant. And so they would start following them and not recognizing that they weren't true to what God had said or they weren't, they weren't aligned with God's word. And by definite sake, they were not the Messiah themselves, himself. And so people were following these individuals, these false prophets and these false teachers. And he's saying, this is how you know the love of God isn't in there because you, you follow these false teachers and prophets. We don't have a problem with that one today, right? We don't have a million authors and podcasts and things at our fingertips, right? Articles with people that we have no idea who they are, yet we believe that they are speaking truth over us. We are just as susceptible to this, if not even more so. Because I'd love to think that, make the argument that today we're searching the scriptures like these religious leaders, but I don't think we are. I don't think we looked at the scriptures as much as these religious leaders did. Now, they looked at them and totally missed it, so it's not that's the, that, that's the answer. But yet, people are, are going to sound really nice and sound really smart. And usually they, let me, let me tell you, the first indicator of your aligning to someone is usually because they already teach what you believe is true in your head. And if it's not aligned to scripture or God, it's a false prophet or teacher. And we're so susceptible to this. I would argue that we are probably more anemic when it comes to the words of God and we're more likely to get tossed to and fro. I think we've seen that kind of working itself out in the church over the last year. So this is how you know the love of God is in there because you'd rather choose false teachers and prophets than you would God. You'd rather listen to someone that would tickle your ears like the Apostle Paul inspired by God says in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Maybe you could just say to suit their own political leanings. Is that too offensive? Sorry. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Guys, we are just as susceptible to this as they were then, if not more. Because we want someone to just make us feel good about what we believe as opposed to, God, what is it that you want us to believe? And how will that alter my life? And what do I need to die to? We've said this over and over and over again. If the scriptures are not confronting you, either you're perfect or something's wrong. The third way, and Jesus actually states that this is what gets in the way of their belief. And this is, so this is huge. The third way that we, we see that the love of God isn't there, he actually says this is what's stopping them from believing that Jesus is the Messiah. So, so pay really close attention. Okay, what, what is it exactly? And he says, because their desire are for acceptance and approval from men and not God. Well, good, we don't have to worry about that. that that's not an issue we have a problem with at all. 
True faith was impossible because they were seeking the wrong object. They were seeking man, not God. He says that this is actually what stops them from receiving Christ. It's because they'd rather hear praise from man than from God. This is, I think, a really difficult thing for us as well. If you're automatically trying to think about anything that you do and how it can be seen on social media or Twitter or anything else, you might be doing it for what man or woman think and not what God thinks. All of the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus hits all kinds of things, and, and specifically in chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus talks about all these things like, do this in private, do this in private, do this in private. And he says, there's these rewards that we held up for you. If you do it in front of man, you've already got your reward. But Jesus here is saying, look, the reason why you're not following, the reason why they're not accepting him, the reason why they won't listen to the four witnesses and all the things that Jesus is saying and all the ways he's declared and all the scriptures he's fulfilled and all the works and everything is because they'd rather hear well done, good and faithful friend than well done, good and faithful servant from God. Because they'd rather get an attaboy pat on the back from a man or a woman than to hear that from their mighty king in heaven. Are you doing things for man or for God? Is it good enough for God to only know what you give financially? Or do you want people to know you're really generous? Is it enough to serve someone that can never thank you or never repay you? Or do you only serve the people that will in turn recognize your position? Do you do it for man or for God? Proverbs 29 says this, the fear of man lays a snare, a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You will be trapped in this cycle over and over again. I'm not, look, I'm not saying you can't put stuff on Facebook or social media. That's not what I'm saying. But what's the motivation? What's the heart behind it? Are your lips saying one thing and your heart different? Or are they the same? Are you pursuing knowledge in Scripture to get to know Jesus? or so you can be seen as a smart person by other people? Do you want to be able to finish an argument, or do you want people to see Jesus in the way that you're talking to them? Are you looking to men? Are you, this is the other way we see this, is that you make allegiances. You try and find these man-made institutions and allegiances and say, well, this is what's right, and therefore I can then think differently of these other institutions and people. I see people do this with churches. Are you looking for the approval from God or from man? One scholar says it this way. He says, if you want to know really where you're at with Scripture and all these things, you want to know if you want to test yourself. He says, this is how you can test yourself and others as to whether you know God or honor God or love God. Here it is. The test is Jesus. Any claim by a Jewish person or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a spiritualist or an animist animist or Christian, any claim to know God or honor God or love God while not receiving Christ as the Son of God and the crucified risen Savior is a false claim. Let me read that one more time just so you guys can hear this. Any claim to know God or honor God or love God while not receiving Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the crucified risen Savior is a false claim. The measure of all true knowing God, honoring God, and loving God is knowing, honoring, and loving Jesus for who he really is. Therefore, Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, embrace your scripture, all of it, both Old Testament and New Testament, because in it you come to know God for who he really is, and that means coming to know Jesus 
For all of the scriptures witness to Jesus and speak of Jesus. How certain are you that the love of God is in you? I ask this question not to get every single person in this room questioning their faith, but I ask this question to get every single one of us to be confident in what we have found in Jesus Christ. See, because it's really easy for us to say, oh, no, 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 I, I read the scriptures and I, I follow the laws and I do these good things or I go to church and I serve. That's exactly what these religious leaders were doing. They had followed the system and yeah, they were making mistakes, but then they had the workout system to, to, to correct those mistakes and they did it through the sacrificial system and they kind of were working their religion and had it in a nice tidy box, yet they missed the Messiah, they missed Jesus. To presume and believe that we are immune to that would be foolish. We are just as susceptible to doing that. And you can see it by the way that you mark your life out in obedience. That's what Jesus said last week. You want to know if the love of God is in you? Well, then live your life in obedience to God. Because you can't live your life in obedience to God without God. Romans 10.9 says it this way. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To confess means to acknowledge as true and then to enter into a covenantal relationship. This is what he's saying here. To, to live by that truth that Jesus is Lord, that means that he's supreme control of your life. That means that when he speaks, you say yes. And you do so knowing that he does it not as some domineering, authoritarian, hurtful, mean person, but as a high priest who can sympathize with you in every single way. And you believe, be committed and put your trust in your heart, the heart in Scripture is always the center of who we are, almost always is the center of who we are, then you'll be saved. And Ezekiel 36 says that when we do that, he removes a heart of stone and puts a heart of flesh in us. Scriptures teach that when we surrender our life to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit indwells in us, and now I can walk in step with the Spirit to actually fulfill the things that God commands of me to do. This is what it means to believe. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If this happens, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So why would we live as if we were part of an old life? And one of the ways we do that, that Jesus lays out for us in this trial as he turns around and accuses them, and I believe, hear this, I believe he would turn around and accuse us so that the same thing at the very beginning, not so that we can figure out we're wrong, but that we may be saved. His desire is to see us saved. Is everything you're doing, your life, is it pointing people and yourself to Jesus or to something else? The way that you do your school, the way that you do your relationships, the way that you do your parenting, the way that you serve, the way that you do live with your money, is everything in there going, yep, Jesus, 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 or is it me, 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 and Jesus kind of comes along with the ride every now and then? Are you living your life for him? Are you letting him show himself to all the people around you? Or are you going, well, I, you know what? It's okay. I know what the scripture says, but I'm just going to go ahead and go this way for now because he'll forgive me. You're, you're making Jesus into a more palatable version. The scriptures speak of it. Jesus does it. I mean, he's going to go on and teach us amazing things to the rest of the gospel of John, but I feel like right here we could just say, okay, courtroom's done. Finished it. Figured it out. But guess what? As sad as it is, they don't. 
we got many more chapters of their opposition, many more chapters of them trying to convince Jesus that he's wrong. Many more chapters of Jesus saying the same thing over and over and over again and them completely missing it. So why would we assume that we aren't possibly going to miss it? Because we can read this and know it? They knew it. They had Jesus in front of them. They were ignoring the works that were literally fulfillments of prophecy. Every single prophecy that he, he fulfilled, all the way from where he was born to how it happened, all of those were things that they knew, and yet they just didn't want to see it. And I think the same is true of us. We'd rather live our lives for ourselves, be more focused on the last 20 years of our life when we can retire the good life as opposed to recognizing that there is no real good life apart from his kingdom. That our life is meant for another world, not even this world at all. The band's going to come up and we're going to sing, we're going to worship. And I want to I I plead with you, I want to beg you to not go through the motions anymore. Not let ourselves be, be just kind of complacent to the things of God. When we sing things like holy, 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 recognize that we're saying the same things that right now angels are doing with God in the throne room saying over and over and over again are never tiring of. Recognize that if you're still breathing, God has a purpose for you to bring about glory to Jesus. And that when you go to work tomorrow, you don't go to work so that you can just live your own life. When you date someone, you don't date just however you want to date. You, you submit yourself to the entirety of Scripture, and wherever God convicts you, you don't say, yeah, but, and try and twist it and move it to make it fit, because that's what they did. They spent the entirety of three years trying to make Jesus fit into their box and kept saying, stop it, stop it, stop it. You've got it wrong. I am the fulfillment of the box that you keep thinking is happening. I am the new covenant. You're missing something. I'm the one that life is brought from. Stop looking for it here. It comes in me. Stop looking for it elsewhere. Guys, our lives are meant to be marked by Jesus. We don't move on from Jesus. We don't get tired of Jesus. We don't expect more from Jesus. He's given us everything. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Jesus Christ. Everything you do tomorrow or the next day or the, the day after that, he has forgiven you in the cross. He has torn us from ourselves. He has brought us new life and resurrected us into spiritual life that we can walk in freedom. Finally, not enslaved to the sinful lives that we are. So why would we stop moving like that and try to go back to the old life? I don't know how Jesus does it when he comes across all these things. I don't know how he does it because I, I get so frustrated with them. Why can't they believe? Why can't they believe? And then God graciously lets me see myself in the mirror and realize, oh, <laughs> I do it too. So will you join me in repenting of the areas of your life that aren't like Jesus? Will you join me in recognizing that there have been things that you've tried to say Jesus are off limits? And he said, no, 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 there's no partial submission to me. It's all or none. And will you live your life bringing glory to Jesus? And so when you sing, sing with no care on who can hear you because you're not doing it for men. You're doing it for your God, your King, your Lord, your Savior, your High Priest. Sing as off-key as you want because it's a joyful noise to Him because He's after the heart, not what's coming out of the lips. And when you serve, do it not as someone that's hoping that you'll get an attaboy or pat on the back, although it is good to encourage one another. The Scriptures tell us that. But that encouragement is never what you need to do what you're doing because you have all encouragement in Christ. The band's going to come up.
and we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for him. I thank you for the way that he has deemed me holy and worthy and blameless and righteous based on nothing I ever did to earn it. God, forgive me, forgive us for the ways with which we try to move on from Jesus. Forgive me, forgive us for the ways that we believe that we um, know better than Jesus. And so God, I pray, I pray our lives, our lives, every bit of our life would be marked by him. That we wouldn't let anyone tickle our ears away from him, no matter how smart they sound, no matter how many credentials or initials they have after their name. God, if they are not preaching Jesus, we will not let ourselves be tossed. And God, we would never try to reject Jesus, even if it means that the version of him is not comfortable for our living, God. And Lord, I pray, I pray that we we would look for more excitement in our life to hearing, well done, good and faithful servant from our King and Lord Jesus than good job or attaboy from any other brother or sister. God, may we not be a people that get stuck in looking for praise of men and lose the praise of you. Father, I thank you that you have saved me. You have created salvation for me. You have brought me to your throne room, and there is nothing I can do to escape that. I thank you for life in the powerful, majestic, holy name, Jesus, our high priest, our Messiah, our king, our judge, our advocate, our co-heir, our savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God.